This is Books and Nachos, a podcast for those of us who find excitement in the pages of a good book. Fiction and nonfiction, graphic novels and more, we're here to help you find something great to read. Welcome to Books and Nachos. It's Stuart in L.A., and I never said never about returning to cover more of the 007 literary novels that we've been doing for the past couple months now. I guess I'm like Connery. I've reemerged to do a very special one-off, The Spy Who Loved Me, written by Ian Fleming in 1961, published the next year, April 1962. It's the shortest and quite possibly the most unusual Bond novel. It comes in at a very scant 164 pages, and that's about 60 pages shorter than any other novel that I've read. Maybe he was influenced by the fact that he'd been doing short stories. This almost feels more like a short story than a full-fledged novel, but it is 164 pages, and it is the Fleming work. We are not covering Christopher Wood's 1977 novelization, the one that follows the movie. This novel is extremely different from the Roger Moore film, and, you know, maybe Fleming actually kind of wishes that we were doing that one because he tried to limit access to this novel. He denied publication in paperback and further publishing for while he remained alive for two more years. He would not allow this novel to go into more prints because it was received so poorly. It's a controversial novel because, well, it doesn't feature Bond that much. This one, we don't get a madman living under water trying to start World War III with stolen nukes. We get a spy story with the central character being a woman. And that Bond comes in at, really, only in the last 70 pages. As that title implies, the spy who loved me, the spy is Bond, me, the central character, this is Vivian. Vivian Michelle, a 23-year-old French-Canadian that's come to find herself in some pretty dire circumstances in America. Fleming's really trying something new here. He even did a little cutesy intro in which he claims he didn't write this, but found this. And because whoever, this woman that kept this diary about meeting the bloke that he's always writing about, 007, well, he felt like that should get published as well. It's kind of this pseudonym game that he's playing here. It went out in his name, but he's acting as if he found it as a autobiographical journal and not his own creative writing experiment. I think that happens a lot with any writer. I mean, any long-time publishing writer. You see it with Stephen King or Anne Rice. Eventually, they get bored. They want to do something different. They're known for a certain type of novel, and the expectations are that they do the same thing again and again. So they create this other identity or do this other thing under the radar that allows them to do something new. This is Novel 10, and he's done short stories as well, and I think he was really looking to find a new angle on a character that had, well, you know, let's face it, he was going to kill him in Book 5. With, from Russia with Love. It had already become old five novels ago. So I think that this is a needed, creative breaking out of the box for Fleming. Sure, he had just started what's called the Blofeld Trilogy. Last week, Brock was talking to you about Thunderball, and Blofeld's plots will continue on for two more novels after this one. But... Fleming wrote it really quickly. I think it was just really helpful for him. Maybe only for him. Like I said, it was not very well received. It's highly unusual. Let's get into it. The novel is kind of broken into three central parts. The first section is called Her, and of course it's chronicling the female protagonist, Vivian Michelle. 
And it's not a happy life. She was orphaned at the age of eight and has lived in a religiously dogmatized, politicized climate in Quebec and is seeking a way out. She journeys to England to finish her, I guess you'd call them high school, early college-ish studies. Her later education in England at a girls' prep school. She meets a boy, she falls in love, he pressures her into having sex, and after several embarrassing heavy petting in public moments, she relents and he dumps her two weeks later. And then she, you know, gets more hardened and goes to work in Germany as a journalist and meets this guy named Kurt. She becomes the rebound girlfriend for him and things start going well until she gets pregnant. He sends her away to have an abortion and then won't have anything to do with her. Basically, it's 60 pages of a woman who is working out her issues with men. She just does not trust men. I don't know that I needed as much exposition as put here. I think this would be a stronger work if it was a short story and they just cut out this first 60 pages. You kind of get everything where she's coming from in a line. She has a line here where she just basically says that love is half physical intimacy and half enslavement. I think that's a cool line. It kind of tells you everything you need to know. This chick has issues. She wants to be close, but she doesn't trust the people she wants to seek out. She likes bad boys. And as the title implies, she must be heading towards our baddest boy yet. What will it be like when she finally meets Bond? Well, before she does, we have to get to the second section, which is entitled Them, the people that are going to terrorize Viv. See, Viv has left England. She's gone back to Quebec. She bought a Vespa. She's now going to road trip. This was kind of a thing. In the late 50s, early 60s, hotels were popping up. Roads were being paved. Route 66 opened up. I, I think this was really the dawning of a youth culture discovering itself on the road. She wants to be a part of that, and so she's going to head to Florida and has gone about 350 miles when she has gotten kind of stuck in the Dreamy Pines Motor Court Hotel in upstate New York, which Fleming is quick to point out is very close to Saratoga Springs. And readers that uh, followed me with Diamonds Are Forever may remember that that was a mob-run town. And really, he saw that as ground zero for criminal activity. So I think I know where Viv is heading at this point. If she's near Saratoga Springs, she's heading towards some really bad characters. And ones that Bond wasn't all able to round up, even in Diamonds Are Forever. It's October 13th, and, you know, we know, readers of from Russia with Love, that this is an unlucky number for Bond. It's just, you know, an ominous, superstitious number. Bond was in a plane that got struck by lightning on that date, and, well, Viv does get struck by lightning as well. She's left alone at the Dreamy Pines motorhome. Her bosses are an obnoxious married couple. The husband's always pinching her butt and making advances. They disappear. They promise that someone else is coming to bring her check. That the real owner of the place, Mr. Sanguinetti, I wonder who that could be, is going to come and he will be bringing the check and be doing an inventory and that she will be able to leave and go about her road trip as soon as he's finished that. And as she's going to reach for the lever to turn off the vacancy sign so that no one rolls up on the place, a big storm approaches, lightning hits the building, it surges through the handle, she gets an electric shock, she falls to the ground, loses consciousness. When she awakens, she is greeted by mobsters. This is the them of the second section. 
two guys. They're really the only things that will resemble anything from the Roger Moore movie. Fleming did not want this story to ever be literally adapted. He made that very clear. He said, you could use my title. You can't use the story. Well, they did use the title, and they used these two characters that Viv meets. There's this one guy named Horowitz. They call him Horror for short. He's tall, he's imposing, and he has a mouthful of silver teeth. So I guess you could kind of extrapolate that and say that that's what Jaws is in Spy Who Loves Me, the movie. The resemblance kind of ends there. I mean, he doesn't tear through any metal chains or eat any sharks in the story. He's just got a lot of fillings, I think. The other guy is short, he's bald, moon-faced. There was a character like him in the movie that kind of took on Bond for a minute on a rooftop in Egypt before he fell off. Well, this guy's called Slugsley Morant. Slugsley in horror work for Mr. Sanguinetti. Go figure. They just got out of prison, and they're here to do a job. They're going to burn the place down. I think it's an insurance fraud thing. They're going to try and take out some TVs and all, but they're here to tear the place down. And they make no pretense about what they're going to do to Viv as well. They they fully plan to do sexual crimes against her. I wouldn't think that she's going to live. They're taunting her with these really derogatory names like Baby and Bimbo and Slot. Not Slut, Slot. I mean, this is kind of sounding like some racy stuff here. She tries to run away. They catch her. The threats of rape come. And all of a sudden, there's a knock at the door. And we're in the last part of the story. Entitled, naturally, Him. The him being, of course, 007. He is, happens to be having a flat tire down the road. He's come here for some assistance. He wants a room for the night. And, of course, we think all the problems are going to go away. We've seen Bond solve lots of international problems. How could he not be able to take out two goons? There's no suspense to the fact that he is going to save them. What we want to know is, how is the love going to come into play? How is this cynical woman going to fall in love with him and he with her? How is Bond going to become a romance novel? And maybe more importantly, why? Why would Fleming write this? Well, as I already said, you know, he'd been kind of getting bored. I think this was an experiment, something that allowed him to do something different. The difference is, I think he's doing something more in the veins of Raymond Chandler, more of a classic hard-boiled noir, game-in-trouble story, the kind of stuff that they churned out in the 40s, the kinds of Mickey Spillane, Bulldog Drummond, Sam Spade, you know, Humphrey Bogart movie kind of stuff. I think that he's trying to recast Bond in that mold and seeing if he can have Bond save a femme fatale in this circumstance. It's interesting. I totally applaud the effort to try. I also think that, you know, maybe Fleming was trying to come back at his critics who had always challenged that he writes women characters that are not very realistic, that they always kind of have the same tragic backstory, that they feel like props and that Bond exploits them. So can he actually write an entire novel from a woman's point of view and give us a woman that feels real, is a real three-dimensional character? Fleming himself told a reporter when he got the bad notices that he had hoped that this would kind of be like a cautionary tale. I think he was alarmed at the fact that his character had found an audience younger than what he intended, that he wrote these for adults, but that young kids, people like Viv and even younger, were reading the stories and really looking at Bond as some kind of superhero. And that's not how Fleming wanted to see it. And of course, this story is coming out right before the Doctor No movie, where that image is going to go even further. 
into an iconic status. So I think Fleming really, what he said was that he wanted young people to understand that idolizing and loving Bond was not a positive thing, that this was a really dangerous world and that you really ought to be cautious about romanticizing or trying to search for this kind of life. So the shocker of Spy Who Loves Me is that Bond ends up treating Viv as badly as all the other men in her life. You know, if we thought that he was going to be a knight in shining armor and save her, well, he does rescue her. He does go into a room and set up a bed so that they think he's sleeping in it and allow the two goons to assassinate him. It's kind of played out in the movie of Dr. No in the same way, where a guy comes in and shoots a pillow and then Bond comes back at him. He saves her from danger, and he, yes, he definitely romances her, and there's a lot of pretty racy sex talk in this. But at the end of the day, she's left behind. Uh, he l writes her a note, and it's kind of wham-bam, thank you, ma'am. And if the point hadn't been made by the cursory way in which Bond slips back out into the night and leaves her alone again, well, then they actually finished the novel with a local cop calling her in for questioning about the what circumstances happened at the why there's dead bodies there and all of that. And basically he lectures her for a few pages about not messing around with men like this. It really does kind of feel like Fleming just saying to youth culture, hey, knock it off. You know, I always thought of Bond as a little bit prudish in the last couple novels. That has changed. He's gotten more racy. His libido has played a bigger part. He's looking less David Nevin and more Sean Connery. But now it's looking a little bit more Connery in this way. Or at least I'm feeling Fleming's disdain for, you know, the sexual revolution and, yeah, youth culture kind of going wild and exploring the open highway. I, I feel like in some strange way, yes, The Spy Who Loves Me plays best as an explicit message to young 20-somethings not to believe the hype that he's been selling, that this is a cool lifestyle. That's definitely a weird notion. I mean, can you imagine reading Stephen King's sequel to The Shining and having the twins coming out and telling Danny there is no such thing as ghosts? I mean, I don't know that Fleming can really do that. You've already started this thing, and it's inner pop culture, and once people have made it their own, I, I don't know that you get to reclaim it anymore. This is him trying to reclaim the character and say, hey, it's not cool to have too high an opinion of a spy who with promiscuous values, but it's already been done. And you did it and profited from it. I, I don't think that your message is going to be heard. I don't think it was heard at the time. I don't know that this novel is going to play any better all these years later. It's just a very strange bird. I appreciate it as novelty only. I like it when people try new things. It was time to try something new. He did it. I don't think it works. I think it would be much more easy to process if this thing were 40, 50 pages and not 165. As short as it is, it's way too long for what Fleming is telling. And it's sad, too, because I was wondering, well, why is Bond even here? And, and towards the end, he does give her a, a rambling story about how there was a Russian who defected and is hiding in Canada and that Spectre had hired assassins, this gang, to go find him. Bond's trolling around to make sure that the gang is not in the area. I'm like, well, this is a better story already. <laughs> like, why did we follow two goons attacking a woman at a motel when we could have had this entire plot? I mean, he could have still done what he wanted to. It still could have been told from a woman's perspective. Maybe this Russian defector was a woman, and it was from her point of view. I think that you still could have done the voice 
trying to do this very thin lecture to the youth of the day to not gravitate towards what you've glamorized. I just don't see the point in it. So, yes, I have returned for Spy Who Loves Me. I'm wondering if Brock just did this because he didn't want to read it. <laughs> but he will be back next week. He is going to be continuing the Books and Nachos journey with On Her Majesty's Secret Service. So, I hope that you keep reading and keep enjoying our 007 retrospective. I won't say I'm never going to be back. And don't forget, we're still going to be watching the movies over at Now Playing. Next week, we wrap up the Dalton twofer with License to Kill. And we'll be heading on, getting back into two Bond movies a week as we go back to Brosnan. So we've still got a very strong four weeks or more of Bond to share with you, both in print and movies. I hope you keep staying with us, keep reading. I'll talk to you someday soon. Thank you for listening to Books and Nachos. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review on iTunes, and you can catch back episodes at our website, booksandnachos.com. The music for Books and Nachos is The Right Prescription by Chai Weapon, which can be downloaded at podsafeaudio.com. Books and Nachos is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2012, all rights reserved.